All right, guys, welcome in uh, for another week uh, for the Wednesday Bible study. Thanks to all of you that are with us today. Let's open up in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, this time together as, uh, as men here in the room and, of course, uh, men and women uh, listening uh, around the country and around the world. Uh, Lord, we're thankful for all the technology that you have allowed us. Uh, at the same time, we know that technology is also trying to be used by the adversary. But, but today, Lord, I pray that all this that you allowed to be created uh, by us will be used to advance your word into the hearts of all that are willing to submit to your authority. And uh, Lord, we just pray that your hand be on us today as we walk through this. In the name of Jesus, amen. For those of you that are new, welcome. We're glad you're here. We're here every Wednesday at this, uh, at this location at noon, uh, local time. If you ever do miss, we had one of the men asking that question. You can stay with us every week. Uh, just, you can go to the uh, podcast channel. If you have a podcast app uh, on your phone, uh, you can go there and search Rick and Bubba's show, and all those archives are available for you on every Wednesday. Our YouTube channel, rickandbubba.com, click on YouTube. You can go back and watch it there if you would like. And then you can also go to all of our social media platforms, the Rick and Bubba Facebook page. You can follow me on Twitter, all of those things. Every week we'll put out uh, the audio uh, of, our, um, of our Bible study. And of course, the YouTube channel gives you the video and the audio. If you're wanting to go back and say, hey, I missed a series that you guys did over the last three-plus years here in the studio, you can go to BurgessMinistries.com, click on Media, and you can find the audio clips of all the Bible studies that we've done in the last few years. So they're all there. Right now, if you're new, we are, we've, we've studied three books of the Bible, but now we're getting into uh, some commentary in a book by Steve Farrar, uh, one of the patriarchs of, of men's ministry. Uh, every man should be required to read Point Man uh, before you, uh, if you, you know, if you become, uh, if, you, if you're new to the faith. Uh, that was the one he's most famous for. But the Finishing Strong is another one, and this is talking about the dilemma uh, that, that, that we find in, in Scripture and we find in our society. And it's a, it's a sad stat that very few men finish well. Very few. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, some of the things we looked at was numbers like 1 out of 10, 2 out of 12. And then, of course, Farrar put the challenge in front of us, and we first started, for those of you that haven't been here, what makes you think, what makes me think that I'll be the 1 or the 2, not the 10 or the 12? What, what are we doing in our life to ensure that we would finish well? And finishing well means what? Well, that means that we finish out our life either through our earthly death or the, or the return of Christ, completely devoted to Him, never compromising the gospel, never compromising our relationship with Him, leaving the faith, the faith fading from the faith, having some moral failure uh, or something of, of that nature. Uh, that's what it looks like. And we, we've talked about uh, the challenge that is before us, and, and, and last week we talked about some of the things that we have to intentionally do uh, to increase uh, the, the probability that we will be one of those who finish well. And today we kind of continue with that theme, and, and, this, and today it's talking about dry shipwrecks. Now what, what Farrar does here, it's really quite beautiful. He, 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 he takes the analogy of the Titanic, and he, and he takes that and he compares it to David's life. Now, and, and of course, we apply it to our own lives. David is an inter interesting person of the Bible because certainly there are incredible things about David in his life that we should use as an example for us. But as Farrar makes the point in this chapter, if you're looking for someone to pattern your life after as far as how you're going to finish, David's really not a good example at all. As a matter of fact, he created uh, quite a bit of, of, of problem uh, problems in his life because of the sin that was in his life. But first of all, the, we, we, we start with this first story 
that is talking about a young man named Alexander Fleming, who was just a farm boy who ended up helping uh, Winston Churchill's father. And when the Churchill's father tried to to pay him for him helping get his you know a carriage out of the mud and everything, the boy said, "No, I just wanted to help you because you're an important man, and I don't need anything." And then he asked him, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he said, I'd love to be a doctor. And, of course, at that time, Winston Churchill's father uh, says, I tell you what, I'll, I'll, I, will, I will provide the money for you to go to school uh, to become, you know, this doctor that you want to become because of you helping me out today. That's, at least, that's something I could do for you. Well, of course, later in life, we find out that Winston Churchill is, is potentially going to die before he ever has that great moment in history where he, um, he, he leads, uh, finally, the Allies to go and stop Hitler because his own son, Winston Churchill's father's son, Winston Churchill, was saved by the research from Alexander Fleming, the boy that had helped him that day when he came to penicillin. So and he talks about you know, recognizing potential in people even when the world may not. And then we go on to talk about David and how David uh, was not even considered by Jesse to be one of the, the son that Samuel was coming to anoint as, uh, as, as king. And so we talk about that, and then we get into how David was, uh, was a very fast starter, and that's, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but what he talks about is with all the potential that David had, he said, you know, out of the starting bla- blocks, if you go to Second Samuel and you stay with David through the first ten chapters of his life, you actually see some, some, some great things. He, he was never defeated in battle. He was never wrong in judgment. Uh, he, he, he begins his reign in prayer and continues in faith. Enemies are subdued. The, the nation is unified, capital secured. The boundary extends from 6,000 to 60,000 square miles. But that's the first 10 chapters of David's life. He said, but in chapter 11, here comes the shipwreck of his life. And after this, he would never quite be the same again. Uh, but he said before the shipwreck, and we know that's Bathsheba, uh, all David had known was triumph. And after this shipwreck, all he ever knew the rest of his life was heartbreak and trouble. And so one of the things that, that he, he, he references Mark Twain here, talking about how much more difficult it is to maneuver uh, through rivers that change their, their channels gradually. And he said so... You know that that's much different than you maneuvering something that always stays the same. He said life is a lot more like a river because there's slight changes that are taking all the time are taking all the time. So if we go through life and say, "Well, this worked for me right now, so this will be my game plan for the rest of my life," that that's foolish. You need to always be submitting to the authority of Christ. You need to always be in Scripture, always in prayer, because what we need to learn is that these gradual changes throughout life and periods of our life will not be navigated properly if you're always just going with the same old thing you've always done. And Mark Twain said, you know, rivers don't, don't work that way. And he goes on to say that uh, an old Greek proverb says, the pilot of a ship is worth as much as the entire crew. No crew member of a river bo- riverboat on the Mississippi would ever argue with that proverb. It said, every time a riverboat captain set out for another journey from St. Louis to Natchez, he was navigating a different river on the same stretch of water he had traveled just two weeks prior. And it wasn't unusual on the Great River to pass the broken timbers of riverboats that hadn't made the necessary course corrections. That's why the challenge of each voyage was always the same. You better cut a plan for this voyage and how you're going to finish strong.
And then he takes on David's life and our life and compares it to the Titanic. And, um, and when you look at all the things that happen with the Titanic, um, you, you find out that it was really a lot more complicated than, hey, there was a ship that, that, that said that God, not even God could sink it. Of course, they were wrong about that. Uh, and something happened and nobody could avoid it. Man, just what a devastating thing. The ship wasn't as strong as everybody thought it was, blah, 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 blah. And he said, that's actually not, not correct at all. The Titanic ignored warning after warning after warning after warning and then crashed. If they had just made the adjustments that everybody was asking them to make and they wouldn't make because of their arrogance or their laziness, the Titanic would have never sunk. And he said the same thing was true about David's life, and he, he, he compares sin to, to shipwrecks, and he says shipwrecks can take you farther than you want to go. Shipwrecks can take you longer than you want, or will keep you longer than you want to stay, and shipwrecks can cost you more than you wanted to pay. And he says you could take the word shipwreck there and put in the word sin for the same thing. He says, so David's shipwreck, the reason why it happened, he said, is the personal shipwreck in his life could, could, could have been avoided in so many ways, just like the wreck of the Titanic. So he says, if you look in Scripture, you'll see this. And if you have something with your Bible or something with your Bible on it, look at 2 Samuel. Now we're in chapter 11. Now, first two, first 10 chapters have been David. I mean, he's got it going on. But then we get to chapter 11. Then it happened in the spring at the time when, Kent, when kings go out to battle. But David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon. They besieged Rabbah, but David stayed in Jerusalem. So there's one adjustment. The Bible clearly says this is the time when David should have been with his men in battle, and he didn't. He said, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to stay back at the house on this one. So first of all, David didn't do what he normally had done, but expected to have the same outcome. He, he, he said, I, I'm going to stay back here. And I love this. It tells me a lot, too, about how David had gotten with his life. Now, when evening came, David arose from his bed. Evening. He's just been laying around all day. So when, when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful in appearance. So keep in mind, David, the same man who had this incredible start, now is in a situation where the biggest shipwreck of his life is about to take place. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers and took her, and when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from uncleanliness, she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, David thought that on this particular day, he cast his eyes upon a woman that he wanted, and he sent for her, and he, they brought her to him. And he said, today, I'm just going to satisfy myself sexually with a woman that I've laid eyes on. Now, keep in mind, he's been told who she is, whose daughter she is, and whose wife she is. That didn't stop it. So does anybody think that David had been living his life up to this point completely under the authority of God and spending time with God and intimately in a relationship with God at this point. Do you really think he would do this if he had been like he was in the first 10 chapters, that this would happen? No. We already see he's doing things 
that he shouldn't have done. But it gets deeper than that. So then he goes into the, the Titanic and compares. Then the next thing he says, throughout the Bible, you'll see three inescapable principles concerning sin, just like shipwreck. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay every single time. If you can't get anything out of these Bible studies that we do week after week, and I think sometimes, especially in the Western church, we've forgotten this, sin matters. Sin is an incredible, incredible problem, and it does matter. We are not to become grace abusers. Just because we've been afforded incredible grace doesn't mean we take that and we abuse that grace. Uh, We've been freed from sin. We have not been freed to sin. Paul warns us. We did our study in Romans. We're not to go out and say, look how gracious God can be, and I'm going to prove that by showing you how bad I can be, even though I've been redeemed and reconciled by Jesus. I'm not going to take that and say, it didn't change me. I'm going to drift away and say, I've got my eternity taken care of, so I'm going to drift over here and then do whatever I need to do. And now I'm going to keep saying, we know God's gracious, God's merciful, and hey, hey, I'm free in Christ. Well, we're not free to do whatever we want to do. And when we do it, we're not above redemption. However, the consequences for our sins are real, and they'll stay with us until we're in the presence of the Lord. I'm living proof of that. And I'm sure some of you in the room are, and I hope if you aren't, I hope that you'll make those adjustments now. Titanic, the same thing as I said. So the Titanic takes off. Now, first of all, I looked at this with the Titanic, and I thought this was interesting. He made this point. They had 20 lifeboats, and they had 2,200 passengers. Is that an arrogant ship? Okay, and so it said the size was greater than any other. We know about the integrity, supposedly, of, uh, of its construction. Uh, and we know that uh, she hit an iceberg and sank in two hours and 40 minutes. And uh, 1,523 people were lost. But just like David's shipwreck, it could have been avoided. Only 705 survivors were picked up, and even those lifeboats were only half full. So they did not have a great plan for tragedy when it happened. And it says that, so this is the thing. I didn't know this. It said throughout the voyage, Titanic had been advised repeatedly of ice conditions at or near the position of, of her sailing orders, required her to occupy. Throughout the day of April 14th, as she approached this location, her wireless operators received at least six messages which described field ice and icebergs on her course directly ahead. She got two messages from other boats, but those were not posted until more than five hours after they'd been received. Got another message from two other boats that no one even showed to the captain since uh, uh, they didn't want to interrupt his dinner. Another message from another boat of warning was uh, never taken to the bridge as the wireless operator was working alone and could not leave the equipment. And then, and, and the receipt of a final crucial message from the Californian was interrupted and never completed when Titanic's operator impatiently cut it off so that he might continue his own commercial traffic. Didn't take the call. There had even been a visual warning at 1030 and that was also ignored. There's no evidence that this vital information was ever heeded, nor was it ever given to Captain Smith, who was now sleeping in his quarter. In actuality, the Titanic shipwrecked long before it ever hit the iceberg, and so did David. 
because of the way he was living his life and ignoring moral, moral problems for years before he ever saw Bathsheba. And one of the things that's talked about that you, you rarely ever hear talk about is, is you know, the fact that David started showing signs of his lack of sexual purity when he started taking multiple wives. This happened long before Bathsheba. So he's violating what God said about the kings of Israel in Deuteronomy, who had clearly laid out that they were not to take multiple wives. But David did anyway. And uh, he was a polygamist, many marriages. Uh, God's plan for David was to be a one-woman kind of man, but he did not go with that plan. So he engineered his own personal shipwreck by denying God. Because it said, when, when you look at the things that are told in Deuteronomy to the kings of Israel, David heeded one, but when it came to sexual purity, like so many men, that one was ignored. He listened to some other things. You know what that means? Some of the things you're telling me to do sounds good to me. This other stuff sounds unreasonable. Now, one of the things that was taught, taught, told me about the multiple wives that I've always wondered about with some of these men in Scripture is, see, they didn't have Internet they didn't have porn. They didn't have a phone. They didn't have magazines. So when they decided they wouldn't have sex with people other than their wives, they just would have to go get more wives or concubines. And David did this. And, of course, remember this, and I had a, a very wise man tell me this before. Anything that a parent does in moderation, your children will do in excess. Anybody seen the numbers on Solomon's wives and concubines? Uh, it, it, makes his, it makes his daddy look like he's just a rookie. Um, uh, but anyway, so, so let's look at what uh, David had been told by God in Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you have that, and it's uh, 14 through 17. So Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 17. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and you live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your, among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves, uh, which is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. So God says here, I don't want you to do this, and if you do, this is what's going to happen. It'll be to your demise. And David said, okay, I want to increase horses. As a matter of fact, you see that. Now, why, why would God not want the king to increase horses? Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, horses were used for warfare, and God didn't want Israel using horses in battle. He didn't want Israel to trust in their vast number of horses when they went to war. He wanted Israel to trust in him. If they went out with more horses than everybody else and they won, they say, well, did God really help us or did we just have more horses? He wanted them to win battles that were miraculous. And they would literally fight people who had horses and chariots and beat them on foot. And, and as a matter of fact, what you find is that David even talked about this in Psalms 27. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
meaning the Lord our God has delivered us in battle, not horses and chariots. Other people depend on that. We don't. So we realize that, that, that David said he wouldn't do that and even praise God for the fact that he didn't. But when it came to the second part of Deuteronomy 17 about not taking multiple wives, David chose to ignore that, showing that this was an issue for David, as it is for many men. So he says this, David, some around the age of 18, give or take a year or two, was anointed by Samuel to be the king of Israel. David did not become king until he was 30. And when David was anointed to become king at 18, he had no wife. By the time he assumed the throne at 30, he had six wives. F.B. Meyer sums up what happened to David before he ever shipwrecked with Bathsheba. In direct violation of the law of Moses, he took more concubines and wives, fostering in him a habit of sensual indulgence which predisposed him to the evil invitation of that evening hour. So F.B. Meyer says, i tell you why he failed. He'd always had a problem with this. And think about that. That's the problem with indulgence in sin. sin. It's never enough, is it? Okay, I don't want one wife, so I've got six. I don't want six wife. I want some concubines. That's just women I get to sleep with because I'm king. But when he saw Bathsheba... He said, but, you know, I hadn't had that woman yet. So it's never enough. Never does, does sinful indulgence ever satisfy us. That, that's the thing that I've tried to learn in my life, and, man, if you can get this, it's radically changed my life. Now, does that mean I don't still struggle with the flesh? Of course it doesn't, but I don't struggle with it like I once did. You know why? Because I'm going to feed the only thing that can defeat my flesh, and that's my spirit. My flesh never, ever is satisfied. Why do you think we keep seeing these people kill themselves over and over again who have everything? Because every time you go to the flesh and you say, I'm going to feed you today, you know what the flesh says? But I want more. Now, when the Spirit is satisfied with the only thing that can satisfy the Spirit, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit under total submission to Jesus Christ, when, you're, when your spirit is satisfied, your flesh doesn't bother you like it once did. Not because of who we are, our great self-control, our code of conduct, because of the power of the Holy Spirit. You do realize what comes into our spirit when we submit to Jesus Christ, the Bible tells us is the same exact power that rose Jesus from the dead. The Holy Spirit rose Jesus from the dead. And that's what we have. And if you'll feed that, your flesh never gets its time at the table. I mean, you don't go there. And, and like we talked about before on Resolve, we don't, we don't live a life going, I'll see what happens when I get in fill in the blank. No, we know what to do before we ever get there. David had not decided that he bought into God's standard about wives. He didn't buy it. He said, I don't know about that. The horses I'll do. And that's just, once again, what I call, of course, someone who struggles with their weight. Of course, I would use analogy of food. Many of us look at our spiritual life like we're at a buffet table. I'm going to pick the things I like, and I'm going to ignore the things I don't. Okay, so God tells me that I should be in the Word of God. Okay, God says I should tithe 10%. Eh, I don't want that. Uh, God says that I shouldn't have multiple wives. Okay. Jesus said, if I lust in my heart for another woman, I'm also an adulterer. Eh, I don't want that. 
And so we go down the line and we pick out the spiritual food we want and we ignore what we don't like. That's exactly what David did. You know what it led to? Disaster. And I know in my own life when I've had that attitude, it's, it's led to disaster as well. So this is nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. So David says, if you want to know why he failed with Bathsheba, he had been failing in this, in this area of his life long before then. And you go on to see all the things that, that happened with David involving his polygamy, and, and it just went on and on and on. And then, of course, when we look at what happened with his son Solomon, oh, my goodness, when you look at this, Solomon occurred 700 wives and 300 concubines. And you know what the scriptures say in 1 Kings 11.3 about David's boy? It says these wives turned his heart away from the Lord God. Do you realize they said that you talk about, and Solomon writes about this in Ecclesiastes. He says, all this was a waste of my time. I should have figured out that my whole role in life was to fear God and do what he says. That's, that's, that's the life I, you should live. Don't live the way I live. They said if Solomon was intimate with one wife, and a concubine never, ever repeated that wife again and just went through all the others till he got back to that wife, it would take him three years to have sex with the same woman twice. And did it, did it satisfy him? He said at the end of his life, he realized all that was a vapor, and he tried everything, and it was just like chasing after the wind. So you're thinking to yourself, as maybe a, a, a lot of people are that are listening to this right now, but Rick, I don't have any other wives. You don't. You may not have a physical wife that, you, that I would find out about. But we've already talked about what Jesus said about lust. But here's some other wives. Pornography. And, and think about all these children that these wives produced for David and the concubines. He had, he had wives... He had children with all of them. We, we were getting into tons of children. And, and you look at all these different things. I think we finally got the number was eight wives for David, and we don't know how many concubines. He had 21 sons and one daughter. He had other children by the concubines. To put it plainly, by ignoring God's command to be a one-woman man, David had one very large messed-up family, and he would regret it the rest of his life. The things that happen with David's children, some of it you don't even like to talk about. And it plagued him for the rest of his life. So when you think about this, say, say your wife is pornography. And, it, and, and Steve says, well, then that's going to bury you the child called shame. I mean, pornography has a stronghold on so many men, it's alarming. And, and, and until you get to the point where you love Jesus more than you love pornography, see, because some of you think, well, Rick, you're telling me I need to love my wife more than pornography. No, that'll never work. Because you'll find some reason to justify that she didn't treat you well today or she's not, she's not being intimate with you enough or something. She's too busy. She's too sleepy. No, it, what, what you have to do is get to the point that you love Christ more than you love pornography. That you don't want Christ to sit there while you look at that garbage. And then when you decide you love Christ more than pornography, then you'll get it out of your life and you'll be the man to your wife that he told you to be. You'll treat her the way he said because you love him so much. And I, and I would challenge anybody to find fault in Jesus. I mean, can you imagine, there's a book called Calvary Road we went through years ago in this Bible study. Roy Hesham paints this picture of you going 
you're going down to go under the cross, and as you're going under the cross, trying to get under it, the blood off Jesus is literally falling on you. As you look up and see him mangled and the price he's paying for your sin and for my sin, his blood is literally dripping on you, and you finally get under the cross to the other side of the new life, and you see this light and all these things that are wonderful, and then you look back at his mangled body, and you just sin again. When you look back at his body on the cross, how in the world does anybody ever say, oh, yeah, I can sin against that? That ain't no big deal. See, we see sin differently when we put it in that. So, And I want to tell some of you this, too. Maybe it'll help you with the struggle with pornography. Instead of these women gratifying you in some way, how does that not break your heart? I try to teach my sons that with a whatever. And here's a woman who's depraving herself like an animal, and you're applauding it. Yeah, that's what I like. That's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's daughter. Jesus is with you everywhere we go, and we're taking him to into that garbage. And you know what else I want to say to you about how less a man that makes you? So you even have to have sex vicariously through some other man. You can't even handle it on your own. Some other guy's got to have sex for you. That's pitiful. I mean, can I at least get a rise out of you out of that? That that, 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 that bothers you? That a man's having to do something for you because you can't do it? You, you're living victories through him? Man, that's all. That's pitiful. I don't know, but, but I understand that it's a serious problem. The next thing we see is what? Then before you know it, you say, well, hey, man, I don't have the hardcore pornography, but, you know, I still got HBO. I still got Cinemax. I got soft porn. And of course, that bears the child of guilt. I remember one of the big wake-ups for me one time was when I was doing endorsements for one of the cable companies, and so they wanted to give me everything they had. And I said, no, thank you. And they said, well, you don't want all of our channels? I said, I don't, I don't want all your channels. Well, you know, you get it for free. I said, I don't want it. And then they said, oh, okay, you're being a good dad. You know we have parent controls on that. So you can watch it, but your kids won't. And I said, no, the reason why I don't want that in my house is because I don't trust me. It's not that I don't trust my kids. I don't trust me. If that garbage comes into my house and I don't go to war in the spring like I'm supposed to, and I'm laying around the house all day, and I'm not in the Bible like I need to be, and my wife's gone somewhere, and I sit there and start flipping those channels around, I'm going to land on some naked woman, and I'm going to look at it. So I know me, and I know what I'm capable of. I don't want it in my house because I don't trust me. And those of you that have it, you're just playing games with it, especially the times we're living in. If there's something you want to watch, you can go customize anything you want and avoid all the garbage and watch what you want to watch when you want to watch it. There's never been a time when looking at soft porn on cable or satellite has, been, has, been, has no credibility because it's easier to avoid it now than it's ever been. You know why? You can go say, I'm going to watch this program at this time, and I ain't watching anything else. There was a time when you had to weed through all that to try to find something. You don't do that anymore. 
I understand that's not the greatest commercial for satellite and cable companies anymore. But as far as far as streaming and all that, you know what I watch on TV? Whatever I want to watch. I'm not I'm not ambushed by anything. And so, and then of course you think about this. Some of you may not have another wife, but you have a prostitute. You've met with some other woman, and that bears you the child of humiliation. And if you don't believe, Farrar said. Uh, that prostitution is not alive and well today. Just look at how many evangelists in the 80s were all caught with them. You know why? They didn't go to war when they were supposed to. They'd made mistakes long before this happened. He said, trust me, those are not the kind of wives you need to take on, nor is that the kind of children that you need to produce in your life. And he says, don't be like the Titanic and don't be like David stop before the shipwreck ever happens. The warnings are there. Heed the warnings. Now, where do some of those warnings need to come from? We've talked about this a lot. Extreme accountability. Do you have those kind of people in your life? Do you have the kind of people in the life in your life that will say, hey, man, it's good to get together. How have you been? Fine. You've been watching anything you're not supposed to watch? I have those kind of men in my life, and, I, and when I see them, I know they're going to want an update. How you treat your wife? We're good. If you, you looked at anything you shouldn't look at? No? If you're on the road, do you have the kind of guys that call you and say, you got your Bible with you? Yes. Have you called your wife? Yes. Have you called down to the front desk and tell them to cut off all the porn? I haven't. Why not? You going to watch it? No. Well, then call them. I want you to call downstairs. I want you to tell them to turn it off, and I want you to call me back and tell me you did it. You won't shipwreck. You got that kind of stuff in your life. <laughs> and, um, and, and see, it, there's, that's the reason why what Satan loves is to get us out of that kind of accountability. We talked about that last week and to get us along. Remember, you've got to have that kind of person. You know, James told us what? That we should confess our sins to one another and we should pray for one another so that we might be healed. Healed of what? Healed of the lust for the other wives that may be tearing you apart. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. Sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. And sin will cost you more than you want to pay. Think about that. Have you ever had that happen in your life? First of all, sin will take you farther than you want to go. Do you really think that David, do you really think when David started this affair and, and he called Bathsheba up to his room, do you think he looked past gratifying his sexual desires? Do you really think that day he said, I'm going to go down there and if you go pick her and bring her back to him, I'm going to have to kill her husband. Do you think he ever thought that? No, he didn't think that because he didn't think sin was going to take him that far. But it did. Now she's pregnant. And he tries to get around that. All right, okay, cool. You're pregnant. Let's, I'm going to bring your husband home. Go sleep with your husband. Then he'll think it's his. Did he think, first of all, did he think he'd get her pregnant? Have you ever thought about how God paid this back? And I'm going to have to be careful with this. And a, a brother just brought this to my attention when I was, we were talking about this in the last week or so. I was actually this week. Monday. The Bible documents that what Bathsheba was doing was cleansing herself after her cycle when David saw her. You do realize that if you just go by biology, she shouldn't have been able to get pregnant. Now you think about that. Now he might not have thought that through, but if you look at biology, 
the way a woman's cycle works, she should have been fair game if you're worried about, not worried about pregnancy right then. But God made sure she got pregnant, didn't he? Now we know that baby died. So, so this, this is somebody that's being defiant to God, and he has no idea how bad this is going to go. And um, they, he talked about this with the captain of the Titanic, same thing. He said he gets on the Titanic, and he's planning his retirement. He said, this is my last voyage, Captain Smith of the Titanic. Had a, he had the whole celebration planned. He couldn't wait to come into New York to that celebration. And he said during, his, during that single uninterrupted voyage, one element of misjudgment was added to another in a deadly chain. Warnings went unheeded. Errors in safety standards and navigations were combined to generate the tragic conclusion. He was headed for retirement. Listen to this from Farrar. And he wound up in an icy coffin thousands of feet below the sea lanes that he had gone through so many times with no problem. Wow. When David looked up, looking at Bathsheba, he had no idea what was going to happen. Listen to what he said. Then David said to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people in the state of the war. David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and, and, uh, and, uh, and he, he was out of the presence of the king, and the king sent after him. But Uriah said, I slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. I did not go down to my house. Now, when David was told this, he said, look, Uriah didn't go down to the house. Then David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? What's wrong? Why don't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? Now you're like, oh, no, man, this guy. <laughs> this guy. You think, you think David thought he was going to have to encounter something like this with the husband? He thought this would be a quick fix, but you know why he couldn't do this? Because he picked a man of what? Incredible character. Was that the wake-up call? Did David go, man, I, I can't believe what I've done. I just need to come clean about this. I just need to tell him what I did. It's going to break his heart, but, man, I... This is not working out. No. Then he tries to get him drunk. That didn't work. He ate and drank, but he didn't go down the house. Now, now, now it came about in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand, by the hand of Uriah. He gives them the letter to take to Joab that has his death sentence written in it. Think about that now. Do you think David ever thought he'd be doing that? When he, he just saw some good-looking woman bathing, and now look what all's happened. Now I'm planning murder. I can tell you in my own life, I remember so vividly, and I, and I won't go into all the details of it, but I just remember so vividly one of these moments in my life, and I was literally sitting at a red light, and I knew that if I went straight, what was going to happen, and if I just turned right and went home, it wouldn't happen. And I remember sitting at that red light. I can, I can see it right now. And I knew if I go straight, what's going to happen. I had no idea the things that were going to happen that I didn't know would happen because of what was going to happen. And all I had to do was just turn right and go home. But I didn't. I remember the first time that I drank alcohol in my entire life. I'll never forget it. I'd never drank my entire life 
And at 19 years old, playing in a, a, a football game away from home, and some guys, it was it was a, a game where different players play together in one of these all-star game deals, and and the guys were drinking. I'd never drank my whole life. I'd been disappointed about what I thought was going to happen in my football career, and it, it had not gone the way I thought. I'd gotten injured. And instead of celebrating the fact that anybody still wanted me to play college ball for them, the team that I wanted to play for had told me I was going to play there, play there, then they took it back when I got injured. And I remember for the first time in my life thinking, what is the big deal tonight if I take one drink, drink one beer? What's the big deal? That led to 13 years of darkness, terrible, horrible things. Sin took me a lot further than I thought I was going to go. And it kept me there a lot longer than I thought I was going to stay. And it cost me a lot more than I ever thought I'd pay. Just little decisions. Praise the Lord for redemption. But the repercussions for those years still haunt me to this day. And they will and, and, until, until I return home. And David is in the same situation. Now he's... What, what just looked like, like a king trying to get his kicks is now led to murder. Place Uriah in the front of the line of the fiercest battle and withdraw for him so that he may struck, be struck down and die. I got to get rid of him. <coughs> so I still think I'm going to get away with it. Talking about David. How many times have you been, been in sin and you keep thinking, I'm going to find some way to get away with this. Somehow this is going to work out. Well, well I, I think at this point when you're, now you're the king, so he's got, he's got more hope than we do. But you're now having someone killed. And it said that David had been driving for a long time on the freeway of sexual gratification. I love this line from Farrar. He had only planned to go as far as the exit that was marked adultery. But the momentum of his deceit took him all the way to the off-ramp of murder. And in David's mind, there was no alternative but that Uriah should die, for dead men tell no tales. If a child were to be born, Uriah's lips at least should not be able to disown it. Sin matters. It certainly matters. Praise the Lord for redemption, but it matters. Then what happened? We know that the Lord sent Nathan to David. You know, we don't give Nathan en enough. Have you got a Nathan in your life? We, we don't give Nathan enough. Do You do realize that Nathan walks in to call out the king. Now, Nathan, doesn't. he's not real straightforward because he doesn't know how it's going to go. Do you, have you ever thought about all David had to do was say, kill this man. Come at you. You, who are you to walk up in my palace and up in my room and call me out and do some illustration about some sheep, and then you tell me that I've done the same thing to Uriah. How about this? Will y'all take him off and kill him today? Kings did that kind of stuff all the time. What did Mel Brooks say? It's good to be king. Now think about it. Nathan didn't know how this was going to go. So, so Nathan says, I, let, me, let me try a little story, see if I can get this to, get this to work out. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich, the other poor. 
The rich man had, had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die, and he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Do you have this guy in your life? Nathan then said to David, you are this man. Have you got that guy in your life? Hey, man, I got to call you out. You're wrong. Hey, the, the way you're living is wrong. Based on Scripture, the way you're treating your wife is wrong. What you just did to your kid was wrong. What you're doing at work is wrong. What you're doing on your taxes is wrong. A man of God does not do what you're doing. Now, praise the Lord that David, and this is one of the things we love, learn from David that's actually good, and that is when he realized that he had not just sinned against Uriah, he had not just sinned against Bathsheba, he had not just sinned against his first wife, eight wives back, he had not just sinned against his children, that he had sinned against God. You see throughout the old prophets of the Old Testament, how many times does God say, please go back and tell them that they are not rejecting you, they are rejecting me, and I see what's going on. Think about how merciful God was to David. And we get a long way down the line of sexual gratification before God says, I've had enough. And God will eventually say, I've had enough. And he'll love you enough, and he loves me enough to say, I, I can remember my day of an awakening that started my process. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget sitting there. I won't get into great detail because I don't want to, you know, be disrespectful to other people or tell their business. But I'll just tell you this. It was a steaming hot summer day in Alabama. And I, and I think this is what David certainly thought at this moment. And I was sitting there, and there were these visuals all around me. And I thought to myself, how in the world? And the little boy that went down front at Meadowbrook Baptist Church to be baptized be this man. How in the world did I get here? You know what I said? I said, this can't be how my life ends. This can't be it. I got to do something and change. And the process began, and God gave me Sherry right after that, and you know the rest of that story. But the repercussions for the way I had behaved up to that time still haunt me to this day. Did it continue to, uh, to haunt David? Listen to this. It'll cost you more than you want to pay. It cost him his infant son who died. It cost him dearly when his oldest son, Amon, raped his half-sister and David's daughter, Tamar. It cost him dearly when his son, Absalom, killed his brother, Amon, for the rape to avenge Tamar. It cost him dearly when years later he, his trusted friend and counselor uh, assisted Absalom in a plot to overthrow David and rip the kingdom out of his hands. And if you remember, this was a man who had served David for decades and he betrayed David and took the side of David's son who was trying to kill his own father. And he says, if you look back, 
I couldn't believe this. This is going to give me chills. I didn't know this. The trusted, I can't pronounce the man's name, the trusted man who had been with David for decades that went against David with Absalom when David's son tried to kill him. Do you know who he was? You know his genealogy? Listen to this. He was the grandfather of Bathsheba, the father of Eliam, Bathsheba's daddy. Bathsheba's granddaddy joined one of David's sons and said, I'll help you kill him. Think about that now. David was never the same after his adultery. David's life was characterized with triumph before that. After this, there's only one word to describe the rest of David's life, and that's trouble. The next time sin looks attractive to you, remember the consequences that haunted David for the rest of his life. Whatever the sin is, it is not worth it. And he goes on to do something controversial here. It's even got me in trouble for passing it along to other people. They don't like hearing this. He said, a case could be argued that David never fully repented of his polygamy. I know, look, I know David's got things that we need to emulate. He's got a lot of things we need to ignore and, and or learn from, I guess is a better way to put that. Don't ignore them. Just don't do them. I didn't know this. I, I, I guess I'd read it and I just didn't pay attention. But Farrar, and the way he does things, made sure that I know it. When you go to the end of his life and you find David ready to die and in physical weakness, I'll just read it to you. This is 1 Kings 1, 1 through 4. Maybe you're like me, you're, you're, you're noticing this for the first time. Now King David was old, advanced in age, and they covered him with clothes, but he could not keep warm. So his servant said to him, let them seek a young virgin from my lord the king and let her attend to the king and become his nurse and let her lie on your chest that my lord the king will be kept warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel and they found a young lady and brought her to the king. And the girl was very beautiful and she became the king's nurse and she served him, but the king did not cohabitate with her. So let's give him props. He didn't have sex with her. But even at the end of his life, of all the things he did, when he couldn't keep warm, he said they went and found him a beautiful young virgin, and she laid him to bed with him until he died. Where was Bathsheba? Where, where was the other seven wives? They all too old and ugly now? Why didn't they come keep him warm? So, so he, not just any woman could lay in the bed with him. It had to be a young, beautiful woman who had, who, who had never had sex with anybody else. All we got to do is keep him warm. Why did it have to be this? I think it speaks to him. He's still got a problem. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to spend eternity with David in heaven. Don't misunderstand me. It shows that he still can't shake it. If, if he just needs to be warm... Go get one of his wives. Why does she have to be beautiful? Why does she have to be young? Why does she have to be a virgin? I have to say that um, when I saw that, it was, it was shocking to me. But, but I couldn't deny what it says. It says what it says in the Scriptures. And he did not have sex with her. The Bible's clear about that. But let me ask you this. <laughs> now, we're not kings. I guess they have a different deal. 
Can you imagine you going to your wife on your dying deathbed? And you said, hey, I'm cold. Can you go find me a sweet-looking young thing to come lay with me? You think that's respectful to your wife? You think that's respectful to God? You think that's respectful for your children? No wonder some of his children wanted to kill him. He had ushered in all these women into their lives, and they all had different mamas. Some of them had mamas that he didn't even marry. No wonder they had so much calamity. That's probably why God wants us to have one wife. <coughs> when you do things God's way, it doesn't mean that things are always going to be perfect. But I'll tell you what it does mean. When you're under his authority, you can go to bed every night and place your head on the pillow and say, I'm at peace. And will God forgive anyone who repents of their sins? Praise the Lord, yes. Praise the Lord, yes. And when we stand before God because of Jesus, will it be as far as the east is from the west and not remembered? Yes. Should we, like Paul says in Philippians, forget what lies behind and stretch to what's ahead? Yes. But earthly repercussions and consequences to sin remain. They remain. Some of us, like me, have already had shipwrecks, and I don't want to have them anymore. And I'm not going to make those mistakes again because of the power of Jesus, not because of me. But some of you are in this room, and some of you are listening to this Bible study and you are ignoring the warnings that you're about to hit an iceberg and sink. And you need to correct it. And you need to stop and heed the warning and correct it. Enough with the woman at the office. Stop it. Enough with the porn. Enough with the, with the HBO and the Cinemax. Enough. Stop it. Because what you're telling the Lord, especially if you claim to be under his authority, is that you still love your sin more than you love him. And you're not quite sold that he's better than sin. And I, I'm going to stand before you as your brother in Christ, and I'm going to scream to the top of my lungs that under the authority of Jesus Christ is not a perfect life, but it far exceeds sin. On my worst day with Jesus defeats my best day in sin. Because at least I'm under the authority of Christ and whatever's happening to me, he's allowing so he can be glorified. Not the consequence of my rejection of him. We were just talking about yesterday at the, the lunch at the, uh, for the Love Lady Center, those wonderful words that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, 17 through 21. Read those today, but in a paraphrase, Paul says, we've been reconciled. Any of those that are in Christ are a new creation, a new creation, completely new. We've been reconciled through Christ back into the presence of a holy God, but we've also, if we're one of those people this has happened to, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We're ambassadors for Christ. And I love when he says this, and I'll leave you with this. And we, we talked about this yesterday. In the English translation, I don't know what the original Greek word was for it, but for our language, those of us that speak English, 
and I, I barely speak it, but Paul uses the term, we implore you. We're, we're begging you to be reconciled to God. We implore you to be reconciled. And if you're here today or you're listening and you have not been reconciled to Christ, I implore you to do so. Just say, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm done fighting you. I submit to your authority and I repent of my sin. This, this world and this flesh just keeps disappointing me and leaving me empty. A lot of you have been in this Bible study for years ago. Are we going to leave here without him doing do not feed the bears? No, I'm doing it. <laughs> you ever seen those signs in national parks? Do not feed the bears. Yeah. See, I used to think, and a lot of people, Amorized people say, well, that's because you don't want bears to eat unhealthy food. That's not why it's there. The reason why it says do not feed the bears, if you have two dozen marshmallows and you get to marshmallow 24, you know what the bear says? Where's 25? And when you tell the bear that you don't have any more marshmallows, then the bear eats you. Some of y'all need to stop feeding the bears because the bear ain't never going to be satisfied. Feed your spirit. Be reconciled to God. And through Jesus, have victory over your sin. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the message. Thank you for this time together and for all who attended. Thanks to all who are listening around the country and even around the world. Lord, I thank you for the men you've placed in my life. I thank you for the wife that you've given me. I thank you for my children who, of course, have paid the price for some of my sins. And I pray, Lord, that you continue to reconcile us all back to you. And that I know, Lord, because of what you did on the cross and when you walked out of that tomb, you are setting things right. Thank you, Lord, for completing all righteousness and then giving that gift to those who receive it and repent of our sins and submit to your authority. Continue to sanctify us, Lord, to make us more like you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.